This is the Bob Olin Show, supported by Dan's Garden Center, located at Dan's Feed Bin in Superior. And by the WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Call now, 218-722-0839. If you have questions for our master gardener, the phone number, again, is 722-0839. Once again, Bob Olin. Bob, I took your advice and thinned out some of the uh, little tiny apples on the tree here. The last you couple did. Days. Yeah. I hated to throw apples away, but they're so tiny, I guess it doesn't matter. And like you said, it just makes for the remaining uh, apples to get bigger and better. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, trees will naturally shed some of them. Mm -hmm. You get off a fruit spur spur on an apple tree, you'll get, uh, if the pollination fertilization is good. And we've had some pretty good bee flights this year. Honey producers are doing quite well in this uh, after a very cold and challenging spring, things got a little delayed there, but now they're taking off and doing real well. But if we get good pollen transfer, we get good fertilization, then actually these trees, uh, if they, uh, you know, it depends on if they're on an on-off uh, habit, but if this is their year to, to really produce fruit, there'll be lots of bloom and actually a little too much fruit. So you get the benefits. If you drop a little bit of that, uh, the trees will shred some. Say you got three or four uh, fruit in a cluster off a fruit spur, they might drop one or two, but you probably want to get down to at least one per fruit spur. And uh, it does a couple things. First, this year fruit, this year's fruit is going to be larger, but uh, not so much energy in the fall is going to go into ripening the fruit. If you've got a, a tree filled with fruit, uh, then there isn't enough energy left over to set the flower buds, which set up in the fall of the year for the following season. So consequently, you'll have a very light year. You can kind of even this out by dropping some of that extra fruit, some of the smaller ones. So you actually took a little bit off. That's great, Dave. Yeah, especially on the on the lower branches. I wasn't going to get a ladder and go up high and do that stuff. So the, no. the deer are going to get really nice apples this year. <laughs> That's good. I'm sure they're looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, the rest <laughs> of them will be small like usual. Yeah, but it does look like that's a pretty good fruit set, does it? Uh, oh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. That uh, tree used to take uh, every other year off, but lately, oh, I don't know, last uh, 10 years, it's been every year. That's great. So you're getting fruit, and uh, you know it's certainly one of the better better varieties we got out there. Good and wet, hardy, and that's really what we're looking for. You know, if you take a look at, isn't it amazing how fast things change in our landscape? I mean, things are just lush and green. I had the question the other day: Can you fertilize in July? Well, typically, we're not fertilizing lawns in July uh, because things aren't actively growing. But with the moisture we've had, the sunlight. As long as the plant is actively growing, if you think there's a need for some additional nitrogen, I've got to warn you, if you are making a, the application of some kind of a lawn fertilizer, uh, you can expect that you're going to be mowing a little bit if there's adequate moisture. <laughs> so you have That's to why I quit that. fertilizing. The more you fertilize, the more you have to mow. And well, that's true. There's, there's something to be said about that. <laughs> now, the, and the time of the year is what's so critical. If you can fertilize in the fall of the year, we, we thicken up plant density. We're pushing a lot of that material in the underground stems the rhizomes, and uh, there you're just going to get a thicker lawn. And this time of year with the moisture we've had, you had a little fertility, and uh, yes, you're going to get a nice, less green lawn, but you're going to have to expect to do a little more, bit more mowing in the process, Dave. All right. We're at 926. We'll take another break. Call now, 218-722-0839. If you have questions for our master gardener, the phone number, again, is 722-0839. Well, once again, Bob, the west and the southwest, uh, dry and uh, windy, and now they got those big fires again in California threatening the uh, sequoia trees, I think that's how you say their name, Yeah. which are, what, thousands of uh, 
years old, which is just unbelievable, and hundreds of feet high. Those are some kind of trees. Yeah, and definitely worth protecting. Yeah, our, mm-hmm. Boy, your hearts kind of go out to those areas. We're getting their moist apparently this year, so... How these weather weather patterns move around, I'm not really sure, but uh, that's pretty hot and dry. whole lot of folks living in that part of the country that uh, wish they had a little bit of moisture at this particular time, certainly, Dave. So we're very appreciative for what we've got. You know, I mentioned the landscapes are so beautiful. One of the themes I've been working on, actually, uh, there's so much interest in uh, pollinators right now, the native bees and, of course, uh, their populations have been pushed a little bit. There's been somewhat of a, of a decline, a population decline, and part of it certainly is uh, perhaps uh, weather-related, disease-related. Uh, we've got a lot of monocrops, a lot of corn and beans being produced out there, and uh, not at all conducive for these types of pollinators, which are so essential to so many of our vegetable and fruit crops. So there's this renewed interest in things like bee lawns. We are taking a little look at some of the species this year and what might be appropriate for us in this area. One of the difficulties we have with some of the bee lawn mixes, and of course this is where you're going to have some kind of a low-stature flowering plant that's going to be integrated into your lawn, and you're going to tolerate uh, some of the broadleaves that you're going to get with that. Uh, I can use clover as an example, some of the white clovers. You're obviously going to have a flowering plant that uh, stays down under mower height so that you're not going to be clipping off the bloom. And we're going to tolerate that. At one time, we wouldn't tolerate any kind of a broadleaf, whether it had a flower or not. And now, of course, we realize that this is good for nectar, good for pollen, and uh, uh, certainly can be a part of a lawn. So the the standards have kind of uh, certainly changed. One of the difficulties we have here, we're so far north, a lot of the bee lawn mixes in this We've got uh, several layers of seed uh, farther south in southern Minnesota, and some of the mixes really are maybe they're appropriate for the metro Twin Cities area, but we're a lot of Zone 3. Most of our listening audience is in Zone 3, those along the lake, Zone 4. Some of these materials, I think, would be appropriate for Zone 4, but not uh, farther north. So we're trying to take a little look and try to find uh, something there, certainly. And a lot of interest in getting pollinator guards. Uh, we're seeing things where maybe a, a person's yard was exclusively grass doing a lot of mowing, and they're just letting a portion go uh, back to more of a natural condition or planting uh, pollinating uh, perennial plants. I think uh, flowering perennials are, are really very valuable there. And one of the themes I've worked with a little bit and tried to encourage people to look at some of the flowering uh, trees, flowering shrubs, and integrate those into your landscape as well. So. Uh, it's kind of nice if you got something that flowers from uh, the be- beginning of the season, early to late spring, well up into the fall. And along that theme, right now we've got our lilacs, of course, uh, that are in bloom or over the hill. They're probably past bloom, but certainly down along the lake, uh, the common lilac, common French lilac. They're literally hundreds of cultivars. It's a plant that goes back a long, long ways. Came in from Europe. Settlers brought it over here. Very hardy. The common common lilac, typically uh, purple in color. We've got so many new varieties now, so we've got a lot of pinks, some uh, glorious white, syringa, all those. One of my favorites is glorious white uh, lilac that fits so nicely in with some of our uh, northern lights, azalea. is just a beautiful contribution. A lot of those now, this is a plant people ask about blooming and pruning, and uh, this is a plant where you want to prune it right after the blooms drop, so if you want to do some pruning there, I think this is the appropriate time. As soon as that bloom drops, uh, you can spend a little time uh, pruning. Uh, if you do not prune lilacs, they obviously will get 10, 12, 15 feet in height. And pretty soon you've just got a woody stick and you've got some leaves up at the top <laughs> and some of the bloom up there. So people want to keep them compact. 
you almost have to prune annually. So uh, getting a little prune, if you got something, you get on a short step ladder, be safe, of course, but uh, pruning them up will lead to the density of the plant and prevent it from really uh, not only growing taller than you'd like it, but getting these long woody stems. If you've got a situation like that where you've just got very tall lilacs, uh, then you oftentimes have to take them right at the ground, prune at ground level, and start over. Uh, they're very vigorous. They'll come from the roots. They're very hardy. But then you're going to—it's going to take a while. Uh, you'll get this uh, a rabbit fur uh, kind of result where you've got a lot of very, very thin stems, and they naturally will uh, self-thin, or you'll have to thin some of those out till you get to what you consider really a hedge. So it's better off if you've got a young planting and uh, something you can reach easily. Better off to give them a prune, and this is the time to do it right now, Dave. Yeah, lilac smells so good. I, I often cut them and, and take them in the house. Yeah, they're beautiful, uh, beautiful blooms that way, and of course, uh, great for the pollinating insects. They just really thrive on them. And again, the nice thing is the hardiness. That's the first thing I say to people when they're considering trees, shrubs, uh, perennial plants of any time. Are we going to get through a series of winters? Not necessarily just one winter. Same thing with the apples. Uh, we want to start. We got some great new varieties out there. But the first question you got to ask: If I'm zone three, I'm up over the hill. Uh, no, we're certainly not. I know we got listeners all the way over in the, into Wisconsin, in the Bayfield, and so forth. They've got Zone Five. It's the only Zone Five we've got because that marvelous peninsula that goes out into Lake Superior. They get protection from the water, but the rest of us, particularly on the western shore, northern shore of Lake Superior, uh, except uh, right down near the lake, you get up over the ridge and it gets pretty cold. That's Zone Three. So the first thing you're going to have to think about is: Are these trees, shrubs, going to make it through not just one warm winter? But through a series of winters, so you want to plant these so they'll last 40, 50, 60 years for you, Dave. But lilacs are certainly in that category, just the common French lilac. They go back, as I say, uh, certainly into the 16, 1700s when they were brought over from Europe. They're good and hardy in this area. But prune them up right now. Uh, we've got some magnificent tree lilacs, which are related, uh, not the common shrub lilac, but they are what we call Syringa in, in that particular genus. Uh, but they form a magnificent flowering tree. As a matter of fact, there was one on uh, College Street uh, near Northwoods Children's Home. I can just point that out. Take a little look as you're driving by. I had to stop and take a photo. Magnificent to white bloom. Uh, they're just a real nice, manageable tree. So oftentimes people are looking for smaller trees and flowering trees. Certainly the Japanese tree lilac is is one of the very, very best they're in bloom right now, and they add so much to the landscape. And again, they're great for the pollinators, uh, all that bloom and the pollen that's being produced. So there's lots out in our landscapes right now. I'm always amazed how fast it changes. It changes literally from day to day. I'd like to hang on to a little bit of this, a little of this bloom a little bit longer. That's why you want to think a little bit about chronology and planting a series of uh, these flowering shrubs and flowering trees so that you get this continuous bloom. It's nice for your landscape and the beauty that that provides. Also nice that you're providing a continuous food supply for the pollinating insects for the entire season, Dave. I guess the pollinating, what, happens mostly in the spring, but do they pollinate all summer long? Oh, yeah, they're moving pollen around. Anything, okay. that's, anything that's flowering uh, requires pollination. And, of course, this is, uh, this is where you want that active uh, insect population. If we take a look at so many of our crops, let's think of the squash crop. Both the winter squash, summer squash will be in first, but they really require these pollinating insects uh, to move the pollen around without uh, pollen transfer from the uh, male to the female portion of the plant. We really don't get development of the fruit. 
so consequently, whether it's squash or raspberries, whatever it might be, uh, blueberries, uh, the, all these crops are coming right now. They're beginning to form, and uh, they all require, these all require insect pollination. So you really want to uh, encourage anything in your landscape, particularly if you're, uh, if you're growing fruits and vegetables. You also want to have a nice uh, group of uh, flowering perennial plants, uh, trees, shrubs, and uh, ornamental uh, perennials so that you've got uh, a good feed source for these pollinating insects. Then they do their job, and your your production and your vegetable and fruit gardens will be that much better, Dave. Talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. There you That's go. it, exactly. All and, right. uh, <laughs> it all fits together, works out nicely, and as I say, there's, there's definitely a new consciousness. And uh, the other thing that people might be aware of, just leave a, a portion of that landscape undisturbed. So many of these native bees, and uh, these are not the the honeybees. Those we're going to bring in, and uh, you know they're they're really produced like uh, like an an, any other animal crop. Really, they're a little different, but we're concerned about the native bees. They're so they're smaller, diminutive, but they do so much of the pollinating, and uh, they really do overwinter in they, some of the stem material. So we can leave some of the older material up for winter interest, but so many of them will overwinter in burrows down in the soil or perhaps in some of that uh, woody material that's lying on the soil surface. So leaving just a small portion undisturbed uh, and, and not cultivating everything, not uh, not having grass or lawn or, or uh, uh, perennial plants that we're going to be removing all the weed material, just leaving an area just open and native, uh, this will really be very conducive to the development of these uh, significant populations as well, Dave. All right, let's head to the phone. I think we got a question. Uh, Bob, go ahead. Yeah, um, I have two questions. One's real short. Great. Rhubarb, pull it from the stalk or cut it at the base? Oh, it's a good question, and uh, it's one that goes on for a long time. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, your choice. If you are pulling it, you want to be just a little careful that you don't overpull. But uh, that's probably the easiest thing to do, and it's certainly not going to be detrimental to the plant. We do want to lighten up on harvest. You can cut it as well. Yeah, so it, it really doesn't matter. One way or the other, your choice. But, okay. of course, uh, you know, we've had a, I'm assuming you had a good rhubarb year. Is that true? Well, yeah, so far so good. Great. Now, we want to be a little careful about harvest at this time. Now, we've had plenty of moisture, so we're getting a lot of good growth on those. But uh, about this time of year, we, we want to cut back on the harvest so that that plant, you leave the leaves up there so that plant can recharge the roots because it is a tremendous perennial, but it does have to have that opportunity. I've seen over-harvesting uh, where it will actually destroy the uh, the plant uh, culture that you've got there. Actually, the plants will die if there isn't enough leaf tissue left so that we can uh, store some carbohydrate to get through the winter. So very light harvest, or maybe we're getting close to the point where you may want to eliminate harvest and just let those plants grow out for the rest of the year. Well, they do. Okay, your other question. They get a stock and flower anyway, don't they? Yeah, they uh, rhubarb will will flower, and uh, you know it'll self seed, and you can actually save some of that seed. You can let that seed go off the stock if you want, and you can get small. Uh, rhubarb plants that you carefully transplant so that you could actually encourage that or you if you want to spread your patch out a little bit you can actually divide the roots in the spring of the year as well but no rhubarb does definitely seed i usually cut the seed stalks off uh, because it does take some some of the uh, nutrient away from the uh, the leaves that are forming and the stalks that are forming which certainly 
uh, you can leave those on, and it's it's one of two ways that rhubarb plants can actually uh, reproduce. Okay, cool. Question to Plum Pocket. Oh, Plum Pockets? Have you had a major problem with that? Well, I I found a flowering bush, and uh, I dug it up and brought it into the yard. And the first three years, I had beautiful plums, wild plums. And then uh, the next or the fourth year, uh, plum pocket formed. Uh, they flowered, and the the the, uh, the fruit came out, but it was soft and. I found out it was called plum pocket. Yes, and uh, that uh, that can definitely be a problem, uh, typically caused by uh, a fungal disorder. Uh, I'm just wondering what we can what we can do for control on that. Um, there isn't a great deal. Uh, you didn't have any problem for quite a while, but uh, you're having it right now, huh? Yeah, and I have for the last. Well, it actually has seeded. I have three of its young <laughs> that sprung up in the yard. Two of those flowered, and they all three have plum pocket now. Fortunately, plum pocket, uh, that's caused by a fungus, so there isn't a lot that you're going to be able to do about it. Uh, I'm thinking that one thing you can always do with uh, fungal disease, it wants to move, and, of course, it attacks the blossom and ultimately the fruit, and it can be kind of devastating. The fact that uh, you didn't have any problem, I think, may have something to do with the um, the density of the foliage. Uh, this, as with most foliar fungi, like uh, they really need plenty of moisture. So I, I really think that pruning that um, that plum down, that tree, it's not the best time of year to do it because we, we don't want to really spread a lot of disease. But... Uh, I would wait till the leaves are down. I would try to thin those trees uh, trees down a bit. And I think the reason you didn't have any problem earlier is we had good air circulation, and good air circulation tends to dry uh, plant tissue down, and that prevents the propagation of this particular fungus. But I think this year, with all the moisture we've had, that's very conducive. And if we've got slightly older trees with a very, what we call, dense canopy, uh, that's really very conducive to the development of this type of uh, fungal disease. There might be some fungicides, and I don't have those off the top of my head because we're not major uh, plum producers, but if you're really concerned, there might be some protectants, some fungicides that could be used. But I would start by trying to thin them down a bit and try to get better air circulation, get the plant as dry as you possibly can. If you are doing any watering, no overhead, the irrigation of any type. So... Um, I think uh, try to do what you can culturally before you try to uh, use any kind of a fungicide on them. Yeah, okay, I will do that. It's, uh, it is, the circulation is probably a problem because it's between the garage and a huge flowering crab tree. Okay, okay. And, and it's right between them, and there's So um, I might just... I just might cut them down and, <laughs> and dig up another one that I find. Sure. And maybe that's sometimes rather than fight it, that's, and I think you probably have a good assessment there. We're not getting good uh, good air movement, good air circulation, very conducive for the development of the fungi and the, and the pocket, which destroys the fruit, of course. 
moving to an, a, an open area, full sun, uh, good air movement in all uh, 360 degrees, that might be a, the best solution for you. Wonderful. Right. I got the spot. I got the spot already picked out. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. I think that's a good approach. Don't have to use any pesticides, and, and it's probably going to work out much better for you. Wonderful. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. We're at 946. We'll take another break, Bob. Uh, The Bob Olin Show here on KDAL. All right, we're back. More of the Bob Olin Show. Bob, we're talking, uh, I guess, funguses. uh, And actually, (laughs) some people grow fungus. There was a big article in the paper over the weekend about, I guess, wild mushrooms and what have you and how you can figure out what's what. But can you actually, I mean, can you grow mushrooms? Can you... The mushrooms Put are them in your garden. <laughs> definitely cultivated, uh, right. either on uh, hardwoods, and a lot of people will uh, will do that, or uh, certainly some of the domesticated varieties grown, uh, you know, in, in mm-hmm. sheltered areas, caves, and so forth. And, and I'm sure they've got uh, uh, structures that have been been constructed for that purpose. And uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of a sub hobby for a lot of people. <laughs> But uh, of interest, there's a lot of interest, and if you're sophisticated enough to to identify the proper mushrooms in the wild, they're they're pretty nice, pretty valuable that way as well. So there's a beneficial fungus. Yeah. Plum pocket, obviously, and most no. of what we're dealing with are not particularly beneficial. But um, yeah, there's uh, there's something for everybody out there, I guess. Dave. Yeah, the mushrooms in my yard, I don't particularly like either. They're, I know well, the shady areas; they'll end up growing quite a bit. Right, and uh, mushroom fish don't depend on the sun. Where, mm-hmm. as we were talking about, the, the gentleman that called here with the, the problem with his plum. Right. Um, there, you want full sun, you want good air drainage, and mushrooms kind of nice. They're what we call saprophytes. In other words, they they grow on and they survive on all of the carbohydrate that's been produced in dead and decaying organic material. So, wow. oftentimes, there's a there's a tree or a tree root that's died. And the, the fungi or the mushroom is actually growing on this dead and dying material, and it doesn't produce any of its own food. It doesn't have any chlorophyll. Doesn't have to be in the sunlight, consequently. But it uh, it has a unique group of um, nutrients as well that a lot of people prescribe to. But uh, I'm not so sure about that. I kind of stick to the fruits and vegetables <laughs> where we know we've got uh, substantial nutrient available there. Makes sense to me. Yes, indeed. But it is it is interesting. This is the kind of year where we will see uh, more fungal problems. Although I, you know, on the tomato crop and so forth, we're always conscious of the fact we're getting these drying periods is very beneficial. Uh, it's when we get these prolonged moist uh, cool conditions that we can have a lot of problem with early blight, late blight, septoria, leaf spot, a lot of fungal disease. But we're getting these dry downs, which are very beneficial. Most of these fungi they produce. Spores, which is kind of a uh, uh, a very simple seed uh, for the fungi, and uh, but they do require oftentimes at least 24 to 48 hours of liquid moisture, and this is the reason why we really don't advise overhead irrigation. And if you're going to irrigate uh, over the foliar portion of the plant, the, the leaves themselves get the water on in the morning, so it dries down before night because it's cool, damp conditions, and prolonged periods that really um, lead to uh, some of this fungal formation. And I think uh, even more so than insects, insects are very visible, and they can be devastating when we get a real heavy infestation of insects. Uh, But uh, I think we probably have more trouble with fungal disease than anything else. And again, because of mornings like this, when we're drying everything down, 
Uh, I've not observed at that point, other than this last call on uh, Plum Pocket, I've not observed a lot of disease pressure at this point. So that's all good, Dave. All right. Sounds good. We'll take another break, Bob, and be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. All right, final portion of the Bob Olin Show is underway. Bob, uh, the flowers are really growing pretty well, too. I noticed the rose garden is in full bloom. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the great thing we have to appreciate, we got a short season here, let's, uh, let's mm-hmm. face it, but it's magnificent. We've got more, more daylight. It brings out the color, and we've got <laughs> cool temperatures. You know, we really haven't had intense heat. Now, one day, and I happened to be out on that particular ah. day, when I think it was about 95 degrees for most of the day, but other than that, it's been cool. It's these warm temperatures that that really um, diminish the the quality of the color. Ah. Uh, so what we got, we we've got plenty of light for producing the sugars that produce the colors, and then we've got cooler temperatures so we can retain the colors. So really, annuals, perennials, uh, flowering trees, and shrubs, uh, they're they are very vivid in our landscape. You know, Dave, if I could take uh, take just a moment here. I, I listening to one of your sponsors there was the Benedictine, and I, I just a uh, little shout out. To, you know, I work with uh, our master gardeners here in St. Louis County. We've got about nine of nine of them throughout the county that are involved in a lot of great projects, and uh, we had three that have, have taken on. They're growing out house plants, and they're getting into the assisted living facilities. I know uh, that they were down at Ecumen on the lake shore yesterday, and they do such a nice job of bringing some joy to uh, to a lot of people that are more confined, aren't able to get out. So for Carol Christensen, Linda Burns, and George Host, the three people I know that were involved yesterday, uh, I want to just thank them publicly for what they're doing. I, I love this project. They're growing them all out, taking them into assisted living facilities, working with the staff so they can maintain these within these facilities, and then giving... Uh, the residents uh, actual house plants to kind of brighten their days. So I think it's a great project, and I want to just take that moment to uh, publicly thank them for what they're doing. Yeah, what a neat idea. I think that's great. I think it really is, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they spend a fair amount of time taking cuttings and, and developing <laughs> these, and they've literally grown out hundreds of plants in there at uh, many assisted living facilities, which have been very, very uh, welcoming to this type of both educational activity and then everyone gets the opportunity uh, to spread a little joy. So, uh, you know, we're fortunate, you and I, Dave, we're out there and we're picking apples and we're mowing lawns and mm-hmm. we're growing plants, and uh, there's a there's a population that doesn't have that opportunity, so our MasterCard is bringing some joy to them. So we want to thank them publicly. All right, sounds good. Bob, uh, continued good growing there. In your thank you, and I remember the Farmer's Market, uh, both uh, Wednesday afternoons 2 to 5, uh, 14th Avenue East and 3rd Street, and then Saturdays at 8 to noon. It, things are going to start to roll now, Dave. So thank you for all you do, Dave. <laughs> hey, no problem. And, uh, we uh, would Nice program. Thank you for our callers. I think it makes things interesting for we'll sure. We'll do it again next Tuesday. You bet, Dave. All right, 957. That'll wrap up the Bob Olin Show here on a Tuesday.